Well, good morning, Canyon Hills. I am so glad you're here this morning. I'm glad that you're joining us online. I am so excited to always be before you. And I want to start off by telling you why I like the book of James. As you know, we're in the series called Stirring. It's called Stirring because the book of James should stir something in us. And because of that, I really appreciate the book of James. You see, James, if you write it out um, and read it out, by the way, you guys should open up your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 1, starting in verse 27. We'll be there in just a second. And also, I know that we always have the, the, the scripture up on the screen, but I would really like for you guys to open up a Bible app. So all of you guys have a phone, find your favorite Bible app and open it up because we're going to follow along and we're going to be referring to some different verses. And it's really important for us to really get the context of what James is talking about. But let me just tell you why I like James. I, I like James because maybe most of you guys can relate, but I like bullet points when someone speaks to me in bullet points like A, B, C, and D. And, and, and that's how, kind of how James talks. That's how he writes is this practical approach and this straightforward approach to living out one's faith. You know, James doesn't spend a lot of time discussing details or what they call doctrine. Instead, instead James just, just goes on and he proclaims how believers, meaning you and I, people who believe in Christ, should respond to various situations and various people. And again, reading James should really stir something in us. And the other reason I like James is because it's very relevant to us today. You learned last week that James was writing to a group of people who had been scattered throughout because they were being persecuted. Now, today, we're not being persecuted except to say that it's, very, it's getting very difficult to be a person who believes in Christ and to speak it out because it's really getting more and more unpopular these days. I don't think uh, I have to convince you of that. So James is very relevant to us today. Soren Kierkegaard who is a Danish philosopher and theologian, keep in mind, this was in the 1800s. This is what he said. The human race in the course of time has taken the liberty of softening and softening Christianity until at last we have contrived to make it exactly the opposite of what it is in the New Testament. Hmm. You know, oftentimes... We try to define Christianity on our terms in a way that aligns with the way we want things to happen. In other words, we're happy to be a Christian as long as we don't have to make any radical changes. The only issue is that we can only take our faith in God terms and not our own. So again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining what we all already know, and that is that our country and our society and our families are at odds with one another over so many different polarizing issues, except to say that the stakes are high. And I think we can all agree on that. And you see, our best response to everything that is going on around us are not hear me carefully, are not our eloquent arguments for or against something, but rather living a radical, a radical example of a life transformed by God. Our response as believers in Christ, as Christians, should reflect in our actions and in our words a life transformed by God. Enter the book of James. He explains throughout this whole book that God's definition of religion and faith may be, I don't know, you guys have to decide for yourselves this morning, may be radically different than our definition. This is what Luther said. A religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, 
or suffers nothing is ultimately worth, finish it for me, nothing. And James chapter 1 and James chapter 2, I have to be honest with you, as I'm going through this, it just turned me upside down. And I think that you're going to see through this whole series that this series is about having real faith in the real world because James changes everything. You guys get ready, get ready to get started? James chapter 1, verse 26. Open up your Bibles. If not, it's up on the screen. But again, I, I would encourage you to read it for yourself in your Bible. It says, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. It says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Religion, he talks about, probably not a word that has the most of positive connotations in these days, and really not a word that has, was used a lot in the New Testament, except here James is using that word to describe what faith looks like in action. The kind of faith, he says, that God would consider pure and faultless and that he would consider worthy. And then he talks about three marks. In these two verses, just these two verses alone, there's three marks of pure and acceptable religion before God. And the third one is expanded into chapter 2, which we'll also cover today. So here's the first mark. The first mark of pure and acceptable religion or true and acceptable religion is controlled speech. It says, what does true religion look like in our lives? Control, control speech, because it, it's a reflection of our heart. Again, it says, if anyone considers himself religious and does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Now, this is one of the many times that James is going to be talking about the tongue. If you remember last week, he already said, be slow to speak. And also keep in mind that James relies heavily on what Jesus has already said throughout the Gospels. That means the first four books of the New Testament. And in Matthew 12, 34, this is what Jesus says, For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Interesting, huh? Whatever you say, is, that's because you're full of it. Hmm. The, the picture that James is, is speaking of here is, what is going to bring honor and glory to God? And what James is saying is that if we don't have a tight rein on our tongue, our religion, he says, is a sham. It's meaningless. You know, I told you that I really like James for his bullet point practical approach until right here, until it hits me like a ton of brick and I say, ouch, James, wow, calm down. But when we speak, we tell the truth about what's in our hearts. Husbands, when you speak to your wife, or you speak about your wife, or boyfriends, when you speak about your girlfriend, you are telling the truth, the reality of what's inside of your hearts. And ladies, you're doing the same. When you speak to family, when you speak to friends, you are exposing the realities of what's in the depths and the core of your heart. And when our language is filled with gossip and bad-mouthing or cursing or anger or maybe just plain inundated with trivial things, we are revealing things that are at the depth, that are at the core of our heart. And what James is saying here is that the tongue, what we say, it is a test. It is a test of a true religion. 
And today we know that we don't just communicate with the tongue. I mean, we live in a day of text messaging and blogs and emails and posts and tweets. And, and we have bought, for some reason, we've bought into this cultural idea that if we have a thought, that means that we should announce it to the world. And James is saying here, hey, be careful to keep a tight rein on your tongue and to make your words count, including what you write, because it is an extension of your heart. That's the first factor. Then verse 27 says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure or true, pure and faultless, is this. And he gives us two things, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress. And the second thing is to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And, and, and I want to take this opportunity. I mean, I love this part right here. I love the picture that he paints because he's talking about, James is talking about this practical compassion and personal purity, and then he puts them side by side right next to each other. And the reason I love this is because we, and I should, every time I speak, I'm speaking, when I say we, I'm speaking of myself as well. We have this tendency to go for one of these and leave the other one behind. Think about that for a second. Now, think with me for a second. On one side, we talk about how we need to guard our morals, the sanctity of life, absolute truth. And on the other side, we talk about how we need to have social concern for the needs of those around us, to have social equality, equal opportunity. And what James is saying is yes to both. It's and. It's not or. James is saying that true religion brings public compassion and personal purity side by side. You see, you can't care deeply about the needs of the world and throw your morals to the wind. And you can't stand deeply on some of these moral truths and lack concern for the needs of the world around you. They come together. Personal purity, practical compassion. This is what God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless. Got awfully quiet in here. Here's the next mark of true and acceptable religion, sacrificial care. Verse 27 again, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress. And it's important that we understand what the word look after means. When you translate that word, when you study that word, it is a word that literally means to visit someone, to seek someone out, not just to say hello, but to care for them and provide for them. It is a powerful word that is used in Scripture. In fact, God uses it in the Old Testament in Exodus, and then he uses it in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 7. You guys can look that up later to describe how God visits his people and to care for them and to provide for them. This is not just a word that says check in on somebody and send them a text, say, hey, I hope you're doing well. No, it's to take ownership and responsibility for caring for them. In other words, to look after them. In that day, when James is writing, there was no life insurance programs for the widows or the child. If someone passed away, there was no welfare programs. And the reality is that the orphans and the widows is a picture for us of people that are in or were in dire need. And today, that definition expands beyond the orphans and the widows because we have a lot of people that are in dire need around us. I think you would agree. I mean, now that we can expand that list, and the Bible talks about them and calls them the least of these. He talks about the homeless, the hungry, the thirsty, the impoverished, the sick, the imprisoner, the, the, the imprisoned. And, and folks, this is kind of where, where James started talking on a personal level to me because as someone who was once in need, I was fatherless, I was impoverished, and I was in need. 
And, and now I think about it, and honestly, it just kind of breaks my heart to think of that there's thousands and millions of people that are going through need every single day, no fault of their own. And then I go further with that, and I start thinking of all those special moments that I've had with my kids, and now my grandkids, where I got to play with them, and I got to read to them and put them to bed. And, and again, I know, as I say that, that there's literally millions of children who didn't have a mom or dad wake them up this morning. In fact, I, I have met a lot of these kids. You have too. We go to Long Beach, we see them. We go to Mexico, we go to the Philippines, and, and they're all around us. That's why I'm so thankful for this gospel message. Because of every case like my kids and my grandkids, there are some kids who don't have a mom and a dad that woke them up this morning. There are some kids that are not going to be put to bed by their parents, and they're going to be reading them a story. I was one of those kids. It's not even on my notes. And James says to the church, This is not an option for you. This is not one way that you show love as a Christian. This is an obligation upon the church to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress. In such a way, oh man, this hurts. In such a way that if you're not doing this, your religion is not true and acceptable and pure before God. That is how serious this deal is. And then I love how it says, religion that God our Father Man, we need to hear that too, meaning that he is the father. He is our father, and he is also the father to the fatherless, and he shows his provision through, for the needy through who? Through you and I. And again, this resonates with me because, again, I'm one of those kids, and my father passed away before I was born, and I was raised by a single mom who was a widow, and she never remarried, and I now realize didn't know it at the time as a kid. I, even as a child, that God was with me. And you know how I knew that? Because I recognized that God was my father. And because it was through his people, people like you. Real, true, authentic, not just listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says kind of religion kind of people. People like you that I was saved. I was saved because people had a belief of caring for the orphans and the widows. And I stand before you because of that. God, we're only in verse 27. Okay, third mark is clear separation. The third mark of true and authentic religion is clear separation from the ways of the world. Now, here's where it starts to get interesting, because this is where James chapter 1 ends, and we go on into chapter 2. But there's this, this verse here is so important, because I don't want you to miss this, because it ties in the rest of the book. When James says, in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted from the world, he's going to talk about the world a lot. And he's also tying in James chapter 2, verse 5, and James chapter 4, which we'll cover later, not today, but later in the weeks, 4-4. And chapter 2, 5 says, listen, my dear brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world? Speaking of the world. 4, 4 says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world, again, talking about the world, is hatred towards God? And then come back to this verse, and it says, in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. See, what James is setting up this picture throughout his whole letter, that he's going to show us the ways of God, in contrast or in comparison to the ways of the world. 
So then we have to define the ways of the world. Well, what is the ways of the world? It's a world system in this world that runs completely contrary to the ways of God. And he's going to urge us to not live according to this world system. And what he does in the beginning of chapter 2 is that he gives us a picture of how the church had bought into the world system with one specific area, favoritism. And the church was doing exactly what the world was doing in honoring the rich and neglecting the poor. Which, if you think about it, it's kind of how the world works around us, isn't it? Because in the world, we tend to give preferential treatment to those who can benefit us the most. Those who we can gain the most from. And this is what James chapter 2, verse 1 starts, and he says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Then he gives us this hypothetical story. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but then you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges, and he says, with evil thoughts? So picture this with me. Modern day, today, the church meeting in a house. Back then, it was, you know, the early church normally met in someone's house. So this is not unrealistic. But today, we still meet at people's homes. We meet there for life groups, which we call, I mean, those are small groups here at church. So picture you're hosting one of these meetings in your house. Very real situation. And picture as people come in that you're going to sign their seats based on their wealth. And you say to the rich person, hey, why don't you come and you take the most comfortable, lazy boys separate from everybody else, and you tell the middle class, why don't you guys squeeze into this couch, maybe three, four, or five can sit in there, think southwest, and then maybe you tell, and maybe you tell this poor, smelly, shabby, close, homeless guy, you know what, uh, you stand by the door, or you can sit by my feet. You know, th- this is exactly a, the hypothetical, but a very likely situation that James uses to make his second point about judging people solely based on their economic status. And it's interesting because the, the fact that James spends so much time in his letter condemning rich folk indicates that there must have been those in the church who were seeking this social or spiritual standing with the church based on their wealth rather than their walk with God. And as I started thinking about this, what's even sadder for me to think about is that there were people that were willing to accept that the wealthy people were somehow better than they were or superior. And it wasn't that just those who were flaunting their wealth that that James is condemning here, but because they were using this, this system, this flawed system that was really evil. He calls it, James calls it evil. And this value system is evil because it is based solely on appearance. And perception. You know, the, the world constantly makes snap judgments based on how people look. So I want us to consider that this morning. Have we honored the rich, shown preference to the rich, because we can benefit from them while neglecting the poor? Have we done that? So let me personalize it, because I can only speak for myself. Have I specifically shown favoritism to people that can help me over someone who can't. And I'm going to be so honest with you guys this morning. Yes. Yes, I have. I mean, haven't we all done this at some point or another? 
judging others according to not the gospel grace of God, but according to our own ideas. I've partiality, sizing people up, being biased, those things can sneak into our words and it can sneak into our actions both in bold and subtle ways. It often forms in the choices that we make, particularly who we talk to or who we prefer to hang out with, and more obviously, sometimes even demanding from people who are different from us to conform to your liking in your ethnic customs and your traditions and your other non-biblical aspects of a Christian life. And the truth is, is if I, the more I think about it, the more I think it's just ingrained in us. It's even cultural. I mean, I, I'm speaking for myself. I've sized people up. When I was in business, I have valued the CFO over the maintenance guy because the CFO can sign my contract. I may treat my gardener different than I treat my doctor because I have something to gain from my doctor. But I've also been on the other side, so you would expect me to have a different belief about this, but I've been on the other side when somebody has discriminated against me. So you see, folks, I don't have a question in my mind if I'm guilty of honoring the rich. I'm guilty. The question is, How do I redeem it? Well, for starters, we should repent. It's the same picture that James is describing here. The question is how. How do we go against the grain of a system that is so ingrained? And I'm going to say, me, perhaps you can relate. Because after all, if you're sitting in this room, statistically speaking, if you drove a car into this place right now, you are extremely rich compared to to the rest of the world. James chapter 2, 1, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, so important. Some of you have a different translation. Some of your translations say our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious one, or our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The emphasis here, or the important here, is how the glory of God is embodied in the person of Christ. And the point is that the majesty, the glory, the splendor, the reign of Christ is above everything else. It is supreme over everything else. It's over all. And as believers, you and I are believers in our glorious Lord. Think about this. If we are captivated by the glory of God, of glory of Christ, the Lord of glory, if he captivates our hearts and our minds, then this radically affects how we view and how we treat others. A proper view of man is dependent on a proper view of Christ. And we look at those who are wealthy and successful in the world, and we begin to attribute honor to them sometimes, and oftentimes, and most of the times, unnecessarily. And James is saying, hey, set your eyes on Christ. Christ is worthy of honor. And people are worthy of honor, all people, regardless of their status, because they are made in God's image. The Apostle Paul reminds us of that. He writes a letter to the Corinthians, and he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. It was Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who came down for poor sinners like me. He came to save those who are impoverished in our sin. And if you follow that Savior, same Savior that I follow, 
then favoritism towards the wealthy makes no sense. If anything, what makes more sense to me, if you follow that Savior, you would show favoritism to the poor, if at all. But the point here that James is trying to make is that you shouldn't show favoritism at all. And then James finishes this illustration in verse 4 and 5, and he says, Listen, my dear brothers, has God not chosen, and again, this is a picture of grace, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? And here we see throughout this redemptive history that God, in his grace, pursuing the poor, not just because they're poor, but because they respond to him and they see a need for him, and he is the defender of the poor. You know, so many times we go on a mission trip and I go with people, and one of the main things that I hear as we come back is people tell me that, wow, they're so surprised or they're impressed of how when working with the poor, they realize that they're so close to God and that they depend on God so much and that they're so happy with so little that they have. That's because of this scripture, because the poor respond to him, because the poor have humility and they are not filled with pride, thinking that they created their own wealth. They know they need help and they seek God wholeheartedly with all their might, with all their being. They seek him wholeheartedly for it. Psalm 68.10 says, Oh God, you provided for the poor. Matthew 5.3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And James is saying that when you neglect the poor, you are negating the very grace of God that he expressed throughout history. You know, the world's system tells us that it is your intelligence and your accomplishments and your looks and your wealth that define your worth. And James comes along and says, none of those matter. None of those will matter when you're going to sit in your deathbed and about to enter eternity. And then he says in verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him who you belong I mean, it's, it's simple. He's saying, do you realize who you're honoring? You're honoring the, and, and appeasing the very people who are hurting you and the very people who are far from God. Now here, I, I want to be careful because it's so important that we understand this this morning. I want to be careful not to imply that if you're poor, that automatically implies that you're righteous. And then if you're rich, it automatically implies that you're wicked. But the picture that he's painting here, and a real situation for James, is that the rich were oppressing the poor. And at the same time, they were blaspheming the name of Christ, meaning they were speaking badly of Christ. And yet they were still living to try to please them while ignoring the poor. And James is basically saying, hey, listen, stop looking at people around you according to the standards of this world. According to what car they drive or what house they live in or the clothes they wear. There's something deeper in here, James is saying. In view of this, he says, it should transform the way that we see other people. And then in verse 8, James says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing the right thing. He's encouraging us. And here's the audience participation part of the program. Anybody know what he's quoting from here in this Scripture? If you see a little footnote at the bottom of your Bible, it might take you to Leviticus 19 in the Old Testament. And this is what it says. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor as fairly 
Then he finishes the scripture in verse 18, but love your neighbor as yourself. James here is referring to the royal law. You guys remember what Jesus said about what the, most, the greatest commandment was, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, love God, the Lord your God, with all your might, with all your strength, with all your soul. And then the second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That is called the royal law. Verse 9, but if you show favoritism, you sin or are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. You know, what's interesting to note, as we read the entire New Testament and we read books like that Paul wrote or here like James or, or Peter, that some of the sins that we would want to excuse ourselves from are often lumped in with sins that we would definitely want to avoid. As an example, gossip and slander are often, often lumped in with sexual immorality and drunkenness. Anger is frequently placed on that same list. Yet, for me, we often excuse ourselves from sins of gossip and anger. And here what James is saying is God is concerned about all sinful behavior because not, you know, if you break one of them, you're, he recognizes that you're unrighteous. Yet he's telling us that favoritism is also a sin. And he's saying it is as if, we, if you had broken the whole law, even if you just do this one here. Kind of when you hit like a window and you just hit one part and then the whole thing shatters, that's the same thing he's describing. You break this little one, the whole thing is going to shatter and you're a lawbreaker. And the word that he uses here for favoritism literally means to receive according to the face. In other words, to respond to someone based upon external factors and an external appearance. Now, we've been talking about favoritism when it comes to the rich, right? That's exactly the context that James is addressing. But at this point, it's, we'd have to also think through if there's a, some areas of our life where we're showing favoritism based on external appearances or factors to anyone besides just the rich. And I, and I started thinking through this, and I, this happens to me, I don't know why, but quite often where people come to me and say, hey, so I was talking to this Mexican guy the other day, or, or, or I was talking to this Asian guy the other day, and I'm thinking, like, why do we have to categorize them as to who they are? I, I, I don't go around saying I talked to a white guy the other day. But think about that. The reality is that we're constantly thinking in terms of what separates us from others, and folks, there's beauty in our uniqueness. Each and every single one of us, our worth and our importance, we know that it comes from God, and we're made in God's image. Not what separates us from each other. Yet the world, because we're talking about the world system, constantly thinks in ways that separates us from each other. And God and James is saying, hey, this is about the body of Christ. This is, we're, we're united. We're all one. We are all part. If you believe in Christ, you are part of Adam. You're part of the human race. And we're all in need of Christ. We are all unified in Christ in such a way that it transforms, it transcends ethnicity. And so we have to be careful to avoid favoritism that disrespects man and highlights our differences. So the challenge before us is to come before God Christ and to ask him to radically transform our thinking so that we don't live according to what James says, the pollution of the world. 
even in the way we speak, we have to be careful not to discriminate, not to show and how to point people that may be different based on external appearance. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has been merciful, who has not been merciful. And those are these, these ouch moments for me again that, John, that James is talking about. But isn't this where it all started? We're kind of full bland, full loop, verse 26 and 27 of chapter 1. This is, let me summarize, speak and act in a way that shows that your religion is pure and faultless. That's basically what James is saying. Speak and act in a way that shows your religion is pure and faultless. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged. Matthew 12, Jesus said, by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. I don't know about you, but that, that makes me think twice before speaking. I, I'm, I'm probably not going to say another word for the rest of the day. And what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 12 is what we've been talking about this whole time and we talked about earlier that our words are an overflow of our hearts and, and we don't want to miss the relationship here that James is using between faith and words and faith and works, which we're going to talk about next week. Our words will be judged and our deeds or lack thereof will be judged. Now, for some of us, this may cause us to tremble inside. And frankly, it should. It should cause us to think, how can I stand before God accountable for all the things that I've said and for all the things that I've done or haven't done that he's asked me to do? And I think about this myself, and I'm like, Lord, I, I, I told you before, I'm guilty already, so now I'm doomed. And if we stop there, yeah, we're doomed. Eternally doomed for the words and the deeds or lack thereof. But then he ends, oh, and I'm so grateful for this. You have no idea how grateful I am for this. He ends verse 13 by saying, mercy triumphs over judgment. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Man, sorry, James, but this is, this is where it gets good. When James declares that the mercy triumphs over judgment, he is saying that mercy is greater. In fact, the Greek word that he uses here I'll try to pronounce it for you. It's kao chao mai, which means to rejoice. He says, mercy gives us something to cheer about. Mercy has bragging rights over judgment because it is so much greater. And praise be to God that mercy triumphs over judgment. Folks, this is the message of Christ, the gospel. It is Jesus Christ, the justice of God, the mercy of God coming together on the cross for you and for me. That when we mess up, like I have throughout this whole message, just saying, ouch, ouch, ouch. It's like I come to God and I say, I am so sorry for this. I am going to do better. God comes before my mercy. Man, it's on you. Take it. Receive it. You have no condemnation because you are in me. So you trust in Christ, you repent whether it's at this moment or a moment that already happened, and then we become this reflection of Christ, and then your life is transformed by God, and that mercy gets flooded into your heart, and then it changes everything. It changes the way we live. Because you can't receive mercy like that, especially in a day like for me. I felt it this week like, thank you. I was so thankful this week the whole week because this is tough stuff. And I'm like, you can't receive mercy like that and go on with a loose tongue and deeds 
that avoid the poor and the needy and the oppressed and the weak. You can't do it. It's impossible. Because when the mercy of God is a reality in our hearts, then mercy towards others becomes a reality in your life. This is how James can say, and this comes full circle, this is how James can say, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress. <sighs> Folks, we are living testimonies of what Christ has done. I'm a living testimony. I told you my story of how far he's brought me. You are examples of his ability, God's ability to heal and redeem and restore and call and equip. We are stories of his provision, his protection, his comfort, and his guidance, and all of his promises. All of us here, we teach, whether you realize it or not, we teach and we preach with our examples, and we are his living words. The Bible calls us a vast multitude. We are the body of Christ. We are believers in Christ, carrying his presence in us, in our actions and in our voices to every corner of the world. May you let James's words this morning and God's transformative power guide you as you walk out of those doors and you enter your mission field. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are in awe of your word this morning. I'm so thankful for your mercy because I am a lawbreaker, Father, yet I've come before you and I repent, and Lord, you know the rest. Father, but there's some here this morning that want to have that same thing with you. They want to feel that grace, that mercy, that love, Lord. And I just ask that you would minister to them. And Lord, beyond that, that we don't miss what you're trying to tell people right now in their hearts. Whatever is stirring in their hearts, Father, may you just bring it to fruition. If it's repentance, Father, may they ask for repentance. If it's forgiveness, if, if, they, if they need help in a certain area, may they ask for that help. Help us all to respond to this message of caring for the needy, Lord. We want to be in your will. Help us to do that. And then, Father, help us to be a different people as we walk out of those doors as a result of hearing your word this morning. We call upon the name of the Lord not only to forgive us, but to guide us and lead us in the way that you would have us go. And I pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.